I'm Shelley Schlender with the KGNU Science Show, How on Earth. This is an extended interview with Dale Bredesen, leader of the Buck Institute for Research on Aging. Bredesen has documented reversal of early Alzheimer's in a small case study, largely through lifestyle interventions. This is really part of a much bigger story, uh, which is uh, the change of medicine from something that asks, what do you have, and treats it with drugs, to something that asks, why are you ill, and what are all the things that contribute to it, and looks at much larger data sets, and then is able to get at the root cause uh, of, of the underlying problem. And we've got currently, you know, most Americans are dying of chronic illnesses, uh, and so the approach to chronic illnesses with single drugs has been relatively ineffective and even a very simple example HIV where it took three drugs to have uh, a significant effect. To some extent this is uh, an extension of that where you're looking at complex illnesses like Alzheimer's disease and cognitive decline due to other causes where you're ending up finding many different contributors and you need to understand the genetics and you need to understand the metabolomics and you need to understand lifestyle changes and many many different contributors and so we've identified dozens and dozens of contributors uh, to cognitive change which chronically can become Alzheimer's disease and so the implications are far-reaching because number one if you look early on you can understand what the risk is and you can have an, a dramatic impact on the likelihood of developing the illness. And secondly, we also see early reversal, which we've published a number of times already, where you can see people who are in the early stages and reverse these people and get them really back to normal often. How far along can someone be with Alzheimer's in the tests you've seen or dementia and still have a chance of reversal? So how far along people can be to have a reversal of their cognitive decline is a, is a big issue, and it's one that we're interested in because the question is, if you go as far as you can, what can you do to take it one more day and then one more week and that sort of thing? So when you get Alzheimer's disease, of course you start out with an at-risk period where you can have uh, a alterations in your cerebrospinal fluid, alterations on your PET scans, for example, but you don't yet have symptoms. And then you enter a period, the second period, which is called SCI, or subjective cognitive impairment, where you can have changes where you know there's something wrong and your spouse knows there's something wrong and your coworkers may know there's something wrong. But at that point, by definition, you're still testing within normal limits. Now, some of that is is just uh, the, an artifact of our testing systems, which, uh, which aren't always sensitive enough to pick up changes, especially in people who've been very, very high functioning throughout their lives. Um, so after SCI, which may last a decade, then you have MCI, which is mild cognitive impairment, and by definition at that point, uh, you know there's something wrong, but also the testing is now showing there's something wrong. So during all those phases, um, we've had very, very good results. You now enter, uh, after MCI, early Alzheimer's disease. And again, we've had some good results with some people who are in that stage. Then from there, mid-stage and late stage, and we've not had such good results with people who are that far along, with people who are, uh, who are uh, significantly impaired with Alzheimer's disease. I think of my uh, mother-in-law was uh, in a memory care, memory care unit. Right. 
So I think about somebody who doesn't recognize their spouse, has to be kept in a locked-in place because if they walk outside, they may wander away and not know where they are. Is that late stage or middle stage or where? Yeah, that's late stage. So the reality is with understanding what's actually causing the problem, nobody should get to that stage. This is, this is like saying if you're trying to try to uh, do something about cancer, you don't want to wait till it's widely metastatic. You want to start early on. And the same goes for cognitive changes. So you want to get in early. You know, pre-symptomatic, SCI, MCI, at the latest early Alzheimer's disease. When someone is not recognizing under other individuals and is in a nursing home, those are late stages. But if somebody still remembers who their friends are and they still remember the people around them, even if they can't add numbers the way that they used to, even if they can't remember dates and times, that's still not late stage yet, that's middle stage? But that's middle of Alzheimer's disease, so that's still relatively late for the program that we developed, which is really for early Alzheimer's and SCI and MCI and prevention. Uh, so, and as far as the calculation part, you know, that is a typically a cortical abnormality that is in a subgroup of people. So we identify different subtypes of Alzheimer's disease, which helps us to understand what's causing each component, what's causing each uh, person's cognitive change. So some people, they might know where they are, but they not, might not know what day of the week it is, and that gives you clues about what needs some support. Right, so if you look at the genetics combined with the biochemistry, combined with the symptoms, then you can get an idea of what is actually causing the problem, what subtype the person actually has, and what, is the, what are the areas that are most affected. What kind of test do you recommend that people get and how much would they cost? So the tests that we recommend um, include uh, genetics and especially we want to know the APOE status of the individual because that's the most important genetic risk factor for Alzheimer's disease. Um, and then it includes a series of biochemistry tests, so things like uh, we'd like to know your copper to zinc ratio, we'd like to know your HSCRP, we'd like to know your vitamin D, we'd like to know your estradiol and testosterone level, and, and, and dozens of other things. All of these are tests that are consumer-grade tests, meaning that I or somebody else could buy them from a lab, a doctor could order these tests. That's correct. You could get these tests. And then, of course, if you are symptomatic, we also recommend that you get MRI imaging. Uh, with uh, quantitation, so with volumetrics, so you'll have an idea about where you stand, whether you have, for example, hippocampal atrophy or not. And then also you want to have a baseline cognitive assessment, and the good news is you can do that online for just a couple of dollars. Uh, the biochemistry tests are the one uh, relatively expensive item, but you can get these for a couple hundred dollars. So it's not tens of thousands of dollars, it might be a thousand dollars to get these tests. Yes, the idea is you should be able to get all of this done for under $1,000. It's still a significant amount of money, of course, but once you have cognitive changes, uh, this is going to have a huge impact on your life, and of course, if you end up in a nursing home, that's going to cost far, far more than that. So the idea is you can spend a lot less and head that off. Dale Bradison, how many people do you think you've helped with this protocol? We've now had close to 150 come through. We don't have data on all of them, um, but more than we have certainly know that more than half of them have shown clear and objective and quantitative improvement. Okay, so half, so roughly 75 people with documented change. More than half, yes. And yet the response to your recent case study from neurologists and other professionals I've talked with is 
This is anecdotal still. This is just case studies. What makes this special? What makes this special is that this is the first time in history that there's been reversal of cognitive decline in early Alzheimer's disease. And we now have also the first objective improvements, uh, volumetric changes on MRI, uh, cognitive changes with neuropsychological quantitative testing. This is the first time that that's been done. You're absolutely right. It is still at the anecdotal stage. And interestingly, you know, that's kind of ironic because this all started back in 2011 where we actually applied to do the first comprehensive trial and the IRBs turned us down. This was actually a trial to be done in Australia and we were turned down by the IRBs as being too complicated. So, you know, this is the same old thing where you have to have data to do a study, you have to have a study to get the data. So this is why you need enough anecdotal evidence. And we're now actually moving to a couple of trials. So we'll have much more evidence uh, within a year or two. But you have to start somewhere. I learned about your kind of perspective 15 years ago or more from some scientists who like to fish in the Colorado Rocky Mountains. What they fish for is salmon. Does that give you enough clues about why that was important? Uh, maybe you're talking about omega-3s and salmon? I don't know, but well, I, I don't, actually I don't know what you're referring to at the moment. Salmon is the only documented animal to, in its life cycle, always get Alzheimer's. Sure. They were one of the first groups to study this extensively, looking at brain scans of salmon or samples of tissue to look and see what the progression was of how the placking happened in a salmon's brain, whether they were swimming all across the Pacific to get up to their sterile little streams high up in the mountains, or just swimming a few miles in the Rocky Mountains. So it wasn't wear and tear, it's a programmed cell death among salmon, where the salmons are eating up their bodies in their final way up to the stream where they'll spawn. And as part of that, their brains are turning into soup. And the beta amyloid plaques in the soupy brains of the salmon are kind of like a Band-Aid that is holding off the parts of the brain they still need for their final acts of courtship and laying their eggs so that those areas are preserved. That was their thought about this, was that when a brain goes awry, it may not just be because of some sticky, tarry things. There may be a reason. So we've, as you know, studied program cell death for many, many years in the laboratory, and that was the idea initially. You know, Could we understand the fundamental nature of Alzheimer's disease and other neurodegenerative conditions so that we could actually develop the first effective therapeutics for these? You could argue that neurodegeneration has been the area of greatest biomedical failure. You know, we have some drugs to treat cancer and HIV. We really haven't done very well with things like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. Well, Dale Bredesen, we have done well with Alzheimer's if it's Alzheimer's in a mouse. That's right. So Alzheimer's, we can do fairly well. But with human Alzheimer's and certainly human neurodegenerative diseases, it's been a, it's been a real slog. And so we wanted to understand the fundamental nature of this. And what we found is actually very, very different than what is the standard idea about Alzheimer's, which is that the amyloid and the tau are the bad actors. What we found is almost the opposite of that, that organisms make amyloid as a protective response, much as what you, like what you were saying about the salmon. You're actually making this as a protective response to three fundamentally different 
metabolic and toxic perturbations. So what we call type 1 is when you're actually making the amyloid in response to inflammation or infection. And as has been shown, Rudy Tanzi and Dr. Moir and his group out of Harvard showed that you actually make an antimicrobial A-beta. So it, ha it functions as an antimicrobial and it is a protective response to infection or inflammation. And that flies in the face of what's been claimed that this is the bad actor in the illness. The second thing is that type 2 you get from a decrease, especially a rapid decrease, in trophic support. What is trophic? Right, so trophic support is the support that is keeping your neurons alive, keeping them healthy, keeping them active. And there are many, many, many different contributors to that trophic support. And these include nerve growth factor, brain-derived neurotrophic factor, testosterone, vitamin D, estradiol, and the list goes on and on. There are dozens and dozens of factors. If you suddenly drop these, the response of the system is to create amyloid, which is involved in a programmatic downsizing, just as you said with the salmon. Okay, let me think about this for just a second. Trophic factors are basically the kinds of things the body does to give food and nourishment and healthiness to the nerve cells, how, did, how they keep the nerve cells healthy. Right. And when there is cell death around the nerves um, and the beta amyloids form, one thing that I couldn't figure out quite from reading your papers was are the beta amyloids forming in the face of necrosis or apoptosis? So first of all, it's not so much that it's forming in response to a death it's forming in response to a depletion. And it act contributes, and this is why people have gotten confused and said it's the bad actor. Well, yes and no. It's a protective response, but it has a downsizing effect. So it does have an effect to pull back on the synapses. It does have an effect to activate neurite retraction. It does have an effect to activate, activate caspases, for example, and ultimately program cell death but that's part of an overall protective response. Again, from inflammation, from uh, downsizing, from the trophic withdrawal. So for example, if you are a woman who has an early hysterectomy and oophorectomy and you lose the estradiol and, and uh, progesterone support to the brain, you are at increased risk. Nice studies out of the Mayo Clinic showing you have about a doubling of the chance to get Alzheimer's disease. So that's part of a an antitrophic uh, response. Meaning that without the right hormones or without adequate balance in the hormones to help send the signals to keep these nerve cells healthy, then the body kind of trims and prunes too much. It, it, it pulls back from growing them enough. Yes, well think about it for a minute. If someone said to you, you can wake up tomorrow morning and you have your choice. You can either, for, you can either forget how to drive or how to speak or how to do math or how to do your job or you can forget the friends rerun on TV that played last night the easy choice would be that you're gonna forget something new because you've spent your life taking the most important information and keeping that and losing things like the seven song that played on the radio on the way to work yesterday so the idea is your brain actually does that for you when things are not supportive for the many many synapses you have which is about one quadrillion synapses the first thing that goes no different than a company which the first thing will go in a company when it downsizes is the hiring of new employees and then if things continue to go badly of course then you start downsizing the company 
company. But the first thing that goes is the hiring of new employees. And that's the same thing that happens in the brain for most of these people. The first thing that goes is the remembering of new information. Dale Bredesen, that's why people tend to not remember new information if their brain cognition is starting to be a little shaky? That's right. Now, we do see in what we call type 3, where their protection is actually against specific toxins, those people will often not have at the beginning the amnestic part, the loss of the new acquisition of information. But that's a different disease. It's, it's a different effect. Even though it does have amyloid, it, does, it is called Alzheimer's, but it's fundamentally different. One thing that you mention quite often in your work is that none of us want to remember everything. You do not want to remember where you parked your car to get into the Target 15 years ago on a certain summer day. That's not the kind of memory that you want to keep. Right. So it is true. You are assigning an importance, a priority, to each new bit of information. And you're keeping the important ones, and you're throwing out the ones that are unimportant. And there's a wonderful book called The Mind of a Nemonist by Luria, great neuropsychologist, who documented the case of a man who could not forget anything. And actually, he had quite significant problems. He had an eidetic memory. Um, he tried to be an attorney, for example, uh, and lost his cases because he couldn't prioritize things. Um, he also uh, tried to be a journalist. That didn't work out well. And he ended up as a lounge act, remembering phone books. He was a very unhappy man. He was. He was haunted, and he was tormented. There was just nothing good about it, really, for him. That's right. All right, so we need to forget our memories as much as we need to remember them. We need to have a balance between memory and forgetting. And the problem, of course, in Alzheimer's disease is that you're on the wrong side of that balance. So you're very, very good with forgetting and very, very poor with remembering things. Metabolically, there's a problem with this, too. In someone whose metabolism doesn't give energy to the cells for whatever reason, you know, they can be eating all the food that they want, but the metabolism doesn't get to the cells, that it's like a one-way road up in a mountain area where the trucks have to go back and forth to send supplies and there's no room for them all to be there. The road is too slow. It's not a good thing. Right. Um, and it sounds like you're talking about tau and the microtubule system. You have to deliver things to the synapse. That's certainly the case. But anything that, la that, that produces a lack in support for the neurons and synapses will result in this downsizing response. And so food is one of the things that you look at, that certain foods actually reduce the ability of cells, even nerve cells, to get the energy they need. That is correct. And actually one of the most common problems, and this is especially a problem in Western societies, is that we, ha we tend to have a carbohydrate-based diet, especially simple carbohydrates, especially if we've been eating processed foods and a standard American diet. That turns out to be a very bad thing for cognition. And so this produces what we call type 1.5, where you have both some of the inflammation because of things like advanced glycation end products. So you're actually changing the structure of the proteins with glucose molecules. That gives you an inflammatory response. Advanced glycated end products, it's kind of like taking caramel from a carameled apple and gumming things up with that. It's, it's a gooey thing that means that proteins don't work properly. And so now your body recognizes these as being abnormal 
and therefore will produce, for example, antibodies, which are then considered autoantibodies, but because there will be a lesser degree of reactivity against the parent molecule. So you look, you look like you have autoantibodies when they're really antibodies directed against this altered protein. At the same time, you also have the type 2 part because you also have insulin resistance, which is a very common problem, again, in our society. And so uh, we need, one of the things that one, that one needs to do is to change the person over from a simple carb-based diet to a lipid-based diet. Lipids, what are those? Fats. So you want a good fats-based diet. Um, monounsaturated fatty acids, polyunsaturated fatty acids, the even median things like olive oils, things like nuts, things like avocados, but also some medium-chain triglycerides, things like that, These are, which are actually saturated fats. That's coconut oil. Coconut oil, which is a 12-carbon, and then caprylic acid, which is uh, what's also re uh, referred to as a medium-chain triglyceride, and that's a typically an 8-carbon, uh, a little different than coconut oil, but same general idea. Where do I get caprylic acid at the grocery store? So you can actually buy uh, capsules of medium-chain triglycerides, or you can buy uh, medium-chain triglycerides as liquid as well. We've been talking about how we don't want all of the memories that we can possibly have. We do want to have our memories trimmed. We just want to have the right memories trimmed. Right. Yeah, you have a priority. You want to keep the important ones, and you want to let go of the ones that are unimportant. Just imagine that in your home you have a contractor who does the demolition and a contractor who does the construction, and imagine that for 20 years the one doing the demolition always did extra and the one that was doing the construction never showed up. You know, your home would be getting smaller and smaller over the years. The same thing happens with osteoporosis. So you have the osteoblastic activity, which is contributing to making the bone. You have the osteoclastic activity, which is picking up the bone. And there are many different signals that are involved with those two. And what we find is that the exact same thing occurs with Alzheimer's disease. You have a whole set of synaptoblastic signals and a whole set of synaptoclastic signals. And for most of your life, these are beautifully matched. And unfortunately, as you get older, you can have the synaptoblastic signals be too little compared to the synaptoclastic signals. And that is what is associated with Alzheimer's disease and loss of synapses. When what you describe is that your protocol, one hope with it, is that it helps get these signal programs back in balance. Absolutely. So, so that you have still some memories that are being pruned out so that you don't have too many superfluous memories, but that when it's an important memory, it gets to stay. Exactly right. So what we do is we measure, and now you can measure, the biochemistry and the genetics and all the things that are causing the synaptoblastic activity to be much lower chronically than the synaptoclastic activity. And then the whole point of the program is to reduce the synaptoclastic activity and to increase the synaptoblastic activity. So you now have a functioning ability to make and store memories once again. And that's exactly what we see. Why not just take that pill called Aricet that takes the stimulators, the neurotransmitters that stimulate memory formation and keep them around so that it kind of forces the nerves to make more memories no matter what? So we liken this to having a roof. Imagine that you have a roof with 36 holes in it. And we say 36 because when we initially looked at, at the mechanisms, we identified 36. Now we know that it's more like 50. Um, it's going to end up somewhere, you know, probably below 100. It's not going to be 1,000, it looks like, but it'll be dozens. 
So now what you have is a roof with 36 holes. If you take a drug, it plugs one hole. It plugs one hole beautifully, very well, but it's only one hole. Now, maybe you're going to be able to take several drugs together. That's a possibility. Maybe it's going to take a combination of a program and drugs. There are lots of possibilities here, but the idea is just attacking this with a monotherapeutic has not been successful so far, and this tells you why. Do some of the people who've reversed their cognitive impairment take drugs like Aricept? Sure. Yeah, some do, some don't. We like to get to people very early on, as early as possible, and hopefully prior to their taking any drugs. Uh, but yes, of course, in some cases, people are already taking drugs. Has it seemed to be something that you think is a major help, or do you think some of these other holes that you plug in the roof, like changing how someone eats, finding out whether you can reduce a buildup of metallic toxins in the body, reducing inflammation, which of those is, are the drugs one of the most important parts or a smaller part? It's absolutely personalized, so it depends on what the problem is. So it, some people, it'll actually turn out to be that they have the inflammatory response where the, you're making amyloid for that inflammatory response. Some of the people it will turn out to be a trophic withdrawal. And often we'll see combinations, of course. We'll identify, for most people, when we do the tests, we find between 10 and 25 abnormalities that we can address. Is it hard work to do it? Um, it is hard work, and that's been one of the difficulties. Typically, it's helpful to have a health coach, and that can be your spouse, or that can be your daughter or son, uh, that can be other people, or it can be a professional health coach who can come and help. And so, yes, it is, and it's especially difficult. You really do have to live the program for six months or so, and then you want to keep tweaking. You want to continue to make things better and better and better over time. We've been talking about things like food, like toxins, like vitamin supplements, but what about in your program topics such as exercise, stress reduction through meditation? Do you really mean that? Yeah, you know, um, if 10 years ago you had told me as a scientist that I would be thinking about and telling people to do meditation and stress reduction and things, I would have laughed. I always thought that these things were unimportant. But it turns out when you actually look at the molecular mechanistics driving the underlying problem, the cognitive decline that ultimately leads to Alzheimer's, guess what? You see a component that is stress-related. You see a component that's sleep-related. You see a component that can be addressed by things like meditation. You see a component that can be addressed by things like exercise. And of course, we're getting more and more scientific understanding of why that is. Um, you see a component that can be addressed by things like a ketogenic diet. So we're finding more and more things that actually support this notion of having an underlying imbalance. And how you can approach it um, does include all of those sorts of things. Now, right now, if someone goes and has tests done to see what their cognition is, and they don't respond as well as they hoped to a drug like Aricept, then basically from that point on, any test that they take is basically just ticking down to see how much more they've declined and how much more they've declined because a neurologist, another therapist is trained to say there's nothing that we can do to turn this around. This is a progressive disease and it won't, you won't get better. That's been the standard claim, that there's nothing that can be done to prevent, reverse, or treat cognitive decline associated with Alzheimer's disease. That's right. What do you want to say about that? What's your opinion about that? I wholeheartedly disagree. Uh, as I said earlier, yes, late in the course, we haven't been able to do that. 
Uh, but um, we've seen, again, you know, dozens and dozens of people now uh, where you do see improvements in cognition and people who have very well-documented SCI, MCI, and early Alzheimer's disease. Why does this matter to you? Is it intellectual curiosity or something else? Well, uh, I see this as one of the major global problems. So the goal that we have is to reduce the global burden of dementia and to increase the global cognitive ability. Uh, imagine that you have people driving around who are at less risk for getting into an accident, people flying planes who are at less risk of having a crash, uh, people who are functioning every day as teachers, as attorneys, as physicians, who all have a greater uh, cerebral capacity. That's the way things are headed. And this includes things, of course, like, like the brain training and, and uh, things where you're improving neuroplasticity. Um, what we're doing with biochemistry actually complements that and synergizes with that approach. So the idea is that this is something that can be very helpful for people all over the world, not simply for preventing and reversing early Alzheimer's disease, but also for improving cognition in all of us. Brain HQ, that program that has gotten so much excitement because it has now been documented to have uh, reduced the chance of brain cognition problems in people who did it. The people who run those programs have been very emphatic in saying it works for people who don't have cognitive impairment yet. It doesn't reverse. It instead has some preventative benefit. Whereas your program, you're describing something which you have some documentation that it has reversed, for some people, cognition problems. Absolutely. So that's what we've published, that we see improvements in hippocampal volumetrics and improvements in neurocognitive testing, quantitation, etc. So yes, and we, so we're very interested to see what happens when we combine the brain training, which to be fair, some of the people on the program have already done brain training. We re have recommended that from the beginning. As you probably know, brain training has gotten somewhat of a black eye and has even had you know, people and companies getting fines. So the question is always, you know, what can you claim and what is appropriate? Uh, there is more and more, as you know, coming out supporting the notion that this neuroplasticity can be used to improve cognition and to reduce the risk of Alzheimer's disease. Now, I've checked with neurologists. I've checked with other people about your program they did not know anything about it. This is after you have a study that was published in 2014, another that was published in 2016, both of them indicating that you have some documentation that shows reversal of a condition that these same experts will say is not reversible ever. Yeah, so um, that is, I think, and this is what happens in every illness. Uh, you know, when you first have uh, HIV being reversed, the claim prior to that was you couldn't do that. And so times change, people make uh, advances, and I think we're, this is part of the problem. We're right at the very, very beginning of this. And that's why, of course, we need more data. We need to understand um, what people respond the best. And we're, we're already seeing specific patterns certain people that respond better than other people, certain subtypes that respond better than other subtypes. And so this is where things are headed. I think we're going to be able to see you know, more and more improvement as we continue to improve the program. But it doesn't surprise me at all that people will say, well, you simply can't do this, because that, of course, has been the dogma up until now. What do you think about the APOE44 group? 
I think the APOE 4-4 group um, is a very, very important group um, and really a historical group because this is about 7 million Americans. It's about 2.25% of the overall population. And these people are at very, very high risk for developing Alzheimer's disease, depending on which study you read, somewhere between 50 and 90% risk for developing Alzheimer's disease during their lifetimes. At the same time, we're dealing with a number of them now, and, and, and a number actually who've shown cognitive improvement on the program when they were already in the earliest stages. So we believe that that is an important group to identify and to work with early on so that we can prevent this. We'd love to see this prevented in all of these people. Um, you know, will that happen? We don't know. But what's happened up until now is that people will say, don't bother to find out your APOE status, because if you find out that you're APOE4 positive, especially if you're a homozygote, then there will be nothing to do about it. And again, we disagree with that. There's a lot that can be done with it today. And so therefore, we recommend that people come out and find out what their status is, and then get their entire, what we call a cognoscopy, the entire, just as you get a colonoscopy when you're 50, you should get a cognoscopy when you're 45, and find out your entire metabolic profile, find out your genetics, and then if you need to get on a program for prevention, then do so at that time. Does this help only people with APOE4, or does it help people with vascular dementia? Does it help people with other kinds of cognition problems that come from other kinds of injuries? It's a good question. We don't yet know. This was based, the whole program was designed around the molecular biology that leads to Alzheimer's disease. So we don't know yet whether this will help people with Lewy body disease or risk for Lewy body disease or Parkinson's or Huntington's or frontotemporal dementia or vascular dementia or chronic traumatic encephalopathy, so forth and so on. We're interested to see how much this may or may not help, but we don't know the answer yet. Do you have anybody studying the proteomics of what's happening? So yeah, so we are beginning uh, a collaboration uh, with the Institute for Systems Biology, um, and they do, as you know, uh, a, a very deep looks uh, genetically and metabolically uh, in their what they call their 100K program and their earlier pioneer program to look at many different things that contribute to the change from wellness to illness. And that includes things like uh, type 2 diabetes and things like he uh, uh, hemochromatosis um, and things like uh, rheumatoid arthritis, inflammatory bowel disease, and of course risk for Alzheimer's disease. So we are looking at larger and larger data sets. And that's actually been one of the problems with medicine for millennia that as physicians, um, we're looking at uh, extremely complex organisms. And we're doing this with these tiny little data sets, like what's your sodium and what's your potassium. It doesn't tell you why you're getting these complex chronic illnesses. So now we're able, and especially with the help of Silicon Valley, to look at your entire genome and your epigenome and your metabolome and your microbiome and on and on and on. So we can now look at much, much larger data sets and not be guessing as to why you are ill or why you're on your way to being ill and then be able to do much, much more about it. As you know, the vast majority of these omics sorts of approaches have been all about analysis but have not offered a treatment, especially treatment that's shown to be effective. And so that's where I think that there's a real 
complementarity between the analytic side and the therapeutic, and especially what we would call programmatics. We think that the programmatic approach is much better than the what we would call philosophy. I think this is where medicine is headed toward larger data sets uh, and programmatics as opposed to monotherapeutics. I'm Shelley Schlender. This has been an extended interview with Dale Bredesen. Find out more at the KGNU Science Show website, howonearthradio.org.